hearts, find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. First, I know we've got some brothers here today, so I'm going to tell you a little story about me and my brother. We're always competitive, and there are some things that we still argue about, about who did what first, or who won that fight, or whatever else. Well, I think we see that a little bit in the disciples today. Um, John, the, the writer of the Gospel, is trying very hard to tell the story truly from both sides. He says that the disciple whom Jesus loved and Peter both ran to the tomb at the same time, but the disciple whom Jesus loved was a little bit faster. So he got there first, but Peter actually went in the tomb. And I can imagine Peter and the other disciple arguing about who actually got there first because the one didn't go in the tomb and the other one did, but the one ran faster than the other one. I bet y'all have some fights like that in your families too. We've spent Lent looking closely at the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. So for the last six weeks, we've talked about how first God makes the world by speaking. God actually speaks the world into being. There was nothing and God spoke. He said, let there be light and there was light and He called it good. He called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. And over and over again for six days this happens. God says, let there be so and so and it happens. And then God says that it's good. On the second day He establishes the atmosphere. On the third day He separates the oceans from the dry land and creates vegetation that springs up all over the earth. On the fourth day, He creates the sun and the moon and the stars. On the sixth day, He creates all the creatures that live in the water and that fly through the air. On the sixth day, He creates all the creatures that live on earth, including humanity. Each day, He speaks it and it happens, and He looks at it and sees it, and He describes it as good. Until the sixth day, when He looks at everything He's created, including humankind that He's made in His own image, male and female, And he says, all of this is very good. That's the nature of the creation that God has made. And he does it all simply by speaking. And it happens. The fabric of creation is made by the speech of God. And then in Genesis 2 and 3, we get a little bit closer look at Adam and Eve. And what happens there is that God plants them, places them in this garden that's full of lush life. Everything that they could imagine eating, all the trees for fruit that they could want are there. And God says, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for the one at the center, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and don't eat of that one. But the serpent came and asked, did God say you couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And Eve said, we can eat from any of the trees except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent says... The serpent says, if you eat of that tree, you won't actually die like God says. You'll just be more like God. Your eyes will be opened and you'll see both good and evil like God does. And what Adam and Eve do in that moment is they listen to another voice more than they listen to God. The world that they live in that's been built on the speech of God, when they violate the Word of God, is is pulled apart at the seams. And it centers on them. It starts with shame. Immediately they start hiding from God. They recognize that they need some clothes. They start trying to fashion fig leaves to cover themselves. But it goes even deeper than that. It affects them in every way. 
And it affects us in every way. No longer is creation something that's going to produce all of this life-giving fruit for them. Instead, creation, though they'll try to grow things that will allow them to eat, will produce thorns and thistles. Adam is going to have to work for his food, and it's going to be hard. By the sweat of his brow, he will eat bread, God says. So their relationship with creation is broken. Their relationship with one another is broken. It says that Eve's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. Their desire with their children is broken as they're born through pain. And their relationship with God is broken. In all these directions, the right relationships that they're supposed to live in are fractured and fragmented. Rather than life that has everything that they need, they're going to have sickness and suffering and pain. They're going to do the wrong things when they want to do the right things. They're going to, over and over again, fail to please God. And this is part of who we are, too. And this is what Jesus has come to heal. When He comes to preach and to teach and to work miracles, He proclaims Himself as the Lord of life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He even says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. The life that you have comes straight from me. Your connection to me is the place where you get your nourishment. And I connect you to everything that you need to bear good fruit. The disciples are in a little bit of a conundrum. Because this one who is the Lord of life, the resurrection and the life, who's told them who he is, is dead. And he's been betrayed by the 12 people who were supposed to care for him the most. Betrayed by one of them and abandoned by all of them. He's been denied by Peter. He's been mocked by the religious leaders. And he's been mocked and tortured by the Roman political leaders. There have been no holds barred. They've, they've spat in his face and made fun of him and whipped and beaten him. Jesus came in love, but they reviled him. He even on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in all of this we see... Jesus bearing the full brunt of the curse on Himself. He Himself suffers and dies. He Himself experiences complete alienation from those who are supposed to love Him. Even from God, He feels separated. (coughs) And the disciples don't quite know what to do. They don't know what to do until Sunday morning. When Mary goes to the tomb first and she sees that the giant stone that they had rolled over the opening has been pushed away and Jesus isn't there. And she goes first for the natural explanation that somebody has decided to move him. So she goes and tells Simon Peter and he and the other disciple have this foot race to the tomb. And the beloved disciple looks in the tomb, though he doesn't go in at first. And he sees and believes You see, Jesus has been telling them throughout His ministry that He will die and be raised on the third day, but they never understood it until this moment. There's something about Jesus rising from the dead that finally starts to let the pieces come back together. And so the beloved disciple and Peter make their way back home, but Mary stays weeping in the garden. And when she looks in the tomb, she sees two angels that ask what seems to be the most heartless question, Woman, why are you weeping? They've taken away my Lord, she says, and I don't know where they've laid him. 
And then she turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize Him. And He asks her that same terrible question. Why are you weeping? If it were me, I'd have said, well, I'm standing beside a tomb. Why don't you put two and two together? But that's not what she says. Mary, there in the garden, desperately wants the Lord. So she says, where have you put Him? If you tell me where you put Him, I'll go and I'll get Him. And then He speaks her name. Mary, He says. And immediately her cries turn into an affectionate address. Rabboni, she says. My teacher, my rabbi. If we move too fast here, we might miss what's happening. You see, Mary thinks that Jesus is the gardener. Mary is weeping in a garden. As Adam and Eve should have been in the Garden of Eden so long ago, thinking that all hope is lost. That whatever hope she had had in Jesus has been put to shame, and there is no more. As Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden and recipients of the curse, Mary is weeping in the garden, bearing the grief of her Lord, experiencing the fullness of that same curse. But she's not confused about Jesus being the gardener. She's confused that he's the gardener of this particular plot. But Jesus is the same one that walked between the trees in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He's the same one that called out to them when they were hiding saying, Where are you? The difference is that Mary knows that she is looking for Jesus. Adam and Eve wanted to hide from God. But Mary is searching for him. She just happens to think that he's dead and that he's been taken out of the garden. But it turns out that not only is he alive, he is life itself exactly as he promised. And when he calls out to her, she does not hide as Adam and Eve did in the garden. She doesn't try to cover her tracks. She wants to find the Lord. But what she discovers in the garden is the good news that the Lord has already found her. And when he calls her by name, she cries out, Rabboni, my teacher, my rabbi. And in saying this, she recognizes a willingness to submit to his teaching. To put herself under the word of Jesus in a way that Adam and Eve would not and could not do. You see, in the garden, in the midst of her tears, Mary doesn't find her Lord as much as he finds her. And there she discovers her life. Because Jesus has conquered the curse by taking it fully upon himself. You see, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but Jesus hung from a tree that was used for evil, that we might know what goodness looks like. He redeems that tree of torment and death, making it a tree of life for us. By the sweat of their brow, Adam and Eve would have to work for their bread. But Jesus has come for us to be the bread of life. That we may not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus himself is God's word in the flesh. Adam and Eve were going to have to fight back the thorns and thistles for all of their lives. So that the soil would bear fruit for them. But the thorns of that same curse bore down on Jesus' head as a crown of thorns weighing him down on a cross that could not conquer him. He becomes the first fruit of the dead. Jesus is forsaken by the Father that we might be received. 
You see, God, to save us from this predicament that we put ourselves in, where we have broken apart the very fabric of creation and made a world that was good, not as good of a place to live. Rather than waving a magic wand and saying, abracadabra, to heal the brokenness that our sin has brought into the world, God has entered into it in the person of Jesus. He's moved into the deepest and darkest corners of our brokenness and Jesus has won. He has triumphed. He's conquered the enemy and not even the gates of hell can prevail against our Lord. He has risen. Mary is recognizing all of this and she wants to cling to Jesus, but he says, don't hold on to me. Go to the disciples and tell them that I'm about to ascend to my father and their father. And this is a difficult thing for us to hear today because we're so excited about Easter at such this high note of death being defeated. And Jesus says there's a little more work to be done. This is the decisive moment of victory. Jesus has conquered sin and death, but it is not the end of the work. Don't hold on to me. It's not yet time to rest. There's still work to be done. The outcome has been determined, but it's not yet here. Sin has been dealt a fatal blow, but it's not yet entirely dead. So go tell the disciples what I'm telling you. You see, Jesus is beginning to fulfill His ministry of reconciliation. There in the garden, Jesus is taking all of the things that we have broken and started starting to piece them back together, beginning with His body and then moving to His relationship with Mary. And from Mary, it extends to the disciples. And from the disciples to the rest of the world, all the way to Shannon, Mississippi, praise the Lord, we hear the good news that Jesus has conquered death. The work is not yet fully completed. We still face suffering. We still face broken relationships. We still often feel far from God. But in this moment of the resurrection we recognize that all of those things are temporary. That God is piecing the whole world back together such that our hope will not be disappointed. Such that one day we will live in a world with bodies that do not fail us, with relationships that don't get fractured, and in full communion with God, where there is no weeping or grief because all are raised to life. This is the good news of the Gospel for us today. Christ is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that sometimes it's difficult for us to believe this truth. For us to believe that death and sin and all of its side effects has truly been conquered. But we ask, Lord, that by your grace your spirit would move in us with the same spirit that brought Jesus back to life and renew our hope and our sense of you. We pray, Lord, that as we recognize the power that you have, even to raise Jesus from the dead, that we would recognize that we ourselves are not beyond your grace, that we are not too far gone to experience the goodness of your love and mercy, that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love us and that you're for us, that we, like Mary, might hear you speak our name in a way that we might respond to you, my teacher, my Christ, my Lord. And Lord, let us not cling to you so closely that we can't continue the work that you've called us to be about. 
Send us further into the world that we may proclaim your good news, that we may share hope with the hopeless, that the captives might be set free, that the sick might be healed, and that the brokenhearted might rejoice. Make your good news real for us in this community, that we might follow after you and sing your praises all of our days. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. He who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. As we respond to the word which we've heard today, uh, we'll do so first by singing. I invite you to turn in your hymnals to number 310. We'll stand and sing, He Lives. Let's stand together. <clears throat> 